0: Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 21. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time of of which God had spoken to him, Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, drive out this, uh, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of his maid shall not, shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendant shall be named. And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of the Sheba. When the water in her skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, about a bow short away. For she said, do not let me see the boy die. And she, said, she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the lad cry, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not be afraid do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the Lord, where he is. Arise, lift up the Lord, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water, and gave the lad a drink. God was with the Lord, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness, and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife. For him from the land of Egypt. This is the word of God. Amen.
1: We've been looking at the book of Genesis to see how the world has gotten to be the way it's gotten and to see what God plans to do about it. And we've been looking in the life of Abraham because, well, Abraham is what God is planning On doing about it. God had promised, if you've been here, you know, we've seen that God had promised to send a Redeemer into the world through Abraham and his family. And God had promised that one day he would bless all peoples on earth through Abraham and his family, and that someday the whole world would experience something globally amazing through Abraham and his family. But when we get to this chapter, there's a problem, and the problem is Abraham and his family. Because honestly, his family is a mess. We see in this one chapter alone, we see polygamy, slavery, uh, abuse, arrogance, female posturing, male indifference, and more class warfare than, than a British BBC episode, right? You know, and you thought your family was dysfunctional. I mean, this is like you know, Mean Girls meets Jerry Springer. And uh, all of this is done, by the way, not by you know, pagans, but by followers of the one true God, people to whom you know, the people of three world faiths can all trace their spiritual roots and lineage. What in the world is God up to here? What can we possibly learn? And the answer is this. Only everything there is to know about the gospel of grace. Because what we have here, if we'll look carefully at it, what we have is the story of the world in the story of every human heart. And to see all of that, I want to take a look at the life of an important person in Abraham's life, an important person in the book of Genesis. It's someone named Hagar. Hagar. And so I want to take a look at Hagar as she intersects and sort of comes up against the three other main characters In the story, in the narrative, I want to look at, number one, first of all, Hagar and Sarah, then Hagar and Abraham, and finally, Hagar and the stranger, because there's a mysterious stranger here in this passage. Maybe you caught that. He's, He's far more than who you think, but we'll come back to him later. But first, let's look at number one and get going here, looking at Hagar and Sarah. Who was Hagar? All right, let's look in verse 9. It says this. uh, Now, Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore, she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son. Now, the translation calls Hagar Sarah's maid, but that sort of makes it appear like there's this nice, you know, you know, familial, genteel, sweet, loving relationship happening between Sarah and Hagar. But that's not what's going on here at all. Man by the name of Dr. Robert Alter, expert in Hebrew narrative, has this to say about that word, maid. He said, quote, The tradition of English versions that render this term handmaiden, maid or maidservant, imposes a misleading sense of European gentility on the sociology of the story. The fact is that Hagar belongs to Sarah as her property and the ensuing complications of their relationship are all built on this fundamental fact. You see, Hagar is not Sarah's maidservant. She is her slave. And things between them have gone from bad to worse. If you know the story, you know that a few chapters earlier, Sarah herself, who had no children, had told Abraham... To go sleep with Hagar so Sarah could take the child for herself. Why? Well, of course, God had promised Sarah this son. that son was going to be, again, the one through whom the Redeemer would come. But there she was, a few chapters earlier in 16, Sarah, uh, 10 years in, still barren, still no child. So Sarah decides she's going to take matters into her own hands. And so she goes to Abraham and she tells him, look, I have put Hagar into your lap which is a Hebrew euphemism for between your legs. Look, Abraham, I'm putting my slave between your legs. And so Sarah forces her slave to sleep with her husband so she can take the child to yourself. You're saying, OMG, oh my goodness, you know. It's so weird, twisted. What was she thinking? Well, again, what was she thinking? Well, Sarah... Was barren, In that culture—you may know—having children was everything. Having children, especially sons, put you on top. It was the way you got to the pinnacle of your culture. Uh, you were looked at as successful, or blessed, or loved by God if you had children. So imagine Sarah's pain as she not only has lived a lifetime without a, a single child, but then one day her husband, you know, bursts in and gets her hopes up. We're going to have. A child, how? I don't know. You know, who spoke to you? God, who's that? I don't know. You know, all that kind of stuff. She gets her hopes up, and then now, decade later, no child. So she makes a colossal mistake, has her slave sleep with her husband. Now it's twenty years later, and she's got her own son, Isaac, and the son of Hagar, Ishmael, is mocking her own family. What a mess. It's easy to look at this and say, well, you know, she did this because she was a a woman uh, in a society that oppressed women. Look at what that patriarchal culture made her do. Now, not for a second. Should we ever go back to that kind of culture where women were property rights, uh, had little to no say over their lives? And by the way, the Bible never approves that kind of culture. In In fact, it's actually going to great lengths here to show you the opposite. This is showing you. In all the gory and painful detail, the pain that women go through when they are oppressed. Far from being anti-woman. I hope you'll see this narrative. It's incredibly, unbelievably pro-woman. This doesn't promote polygamy. It undercuts it. And if you say, I've never really seen that before, it's because you didn't grow up as a child of the 1980s. Because in the 1980s, if you grew up there where I did, you know that there was always every sitcom, you know, Growing Pains, Cosby Show, After School Special, there was always the Don't Do Drugs episode, right? Don't Do Drugs episode. Some of you are saying, yes, I've seen one or ten of those. And the Don't Do Drugs episode always went the same. Some, you know, well-meaning young person duped into a life of drugs. They take the drugs. It always goes bad for them, right? And so what was the point of the show? Come on, don't do drugs you know it was coming it was the same story every time it was always negative never positive and so when you see polygamy these things like this in the bible and it's always negative it's always bad it always shows you the train wreck of lives and the disaster that a, a cultural institution like this wreaked in people's lives you should know it's telling you the same thing this is the don't do polygamy episode of the Bible. See, this totally undercuts polygamy. This is a protest movie aimed squarely at the hearts of men. It always goes bad. It never goes well. And if you think this is teaching you to live like that, let me tell you, Robert Alter would say, you don't know how to read Hebrew narrative. That being said, well, let's ask a question. Well, are are women now, are they really free in our society, in our culture? Well, yeah, women are definitely freer on the outside, but inside, there can still be massive slavery. Let me give you one example, because we know that in contrast to today, women in Sarah's day, Hagar's day, they did not struggle with eating disorders, virtually non-existent. There's no mention of any woman ever in the Bible ever struggling with an eating disorder, So if women are free on the outside, why have so many women now, today, in our world, including my wife Carrie for many years, why have they struggled with eating disorders, body image issues? It's because now, of course, our culture oppresses women differently. We look at them and say, you're free to be whatever you want. You can marry anyone you want as long as you're young enough, thin enough, beautiful enough, right? Have the right skin color enough. See, having children, having a family, isn't as much an idol anymore. Now it's your looks and your individual self, which is why we have a magazine called Self, right? There's no magazine today called Others. (laughs) It's only a magazine (laughs) called Self. Think about it like this. Polygamy is to a family-oriented culture, as eating and body image disorders are to an individual-oriented culture. See, all the polygamy, eating disorders, all symptoms of a broken culture. Women, would they would do anything. They did do anything, like Sarah, them to have a family back then. And now women today, you know this, they can do anything to look and feel beautiful now. I mean, especially you see pictures, uh, especially of female celebrities, not always female, sometimes male for sure. But many times female celebrities, they've been permanently disfigured by repeated and risky plastic surgeries. You see those after pictures and you think, why would she do that? It's for the same reason you read this text and you ask, why would she do that? It's because there's no culture that doesn't oppress people. Because every culture, including ours, in some way, always hear this, cooperates with some part of the human heart that looks to meet its deepest need apart from God. So that's what's going on. So you hear this, all right, you know, especially ladies, you hear this and you think, well, all right, I'll just go the other way. You know, knuckles cracked. That's what the preacher's telling me today. I'm going to reject. He's telling me to reject what mainstream Hollywood is telling me. He says, I just need to be a better person. Being a better person would help me. I'm going to stop, you know, worrying about my looks. I may not be as beautiful as her, but I'm going to be better than her. Uh Uh-oh. Well, that's still not getting your identity. From Christ, but from just another set of culturally conditioned choices. Look at this. I'm going to show you two diary entries written about a hundred years apart. This is from a book called the The Body Project, came out a number of years ago. It is, the, the book was taking a look at the lives of young women in American culture over the last 100 years. And the first diary entry, uh, diary entry, I want to show you is from the 1890s, and here's what it says: Resolve. Not to talk about myself or feelings. I guess no one had broken it to her that Facebook would be a thing one day. Anyway, all right. To think before speaking. To work seriously. To be self-restrained in conversation and actions. Not to let my thoughts wander. To be dignified. Interest myself more in others. You say, this kind of sounds uptight. All right, well, let's flash forward. A hundred plus years later, second diary entry this one says from a young, another young woman i will try to make myself better in any way i possibly can how's she going to do that here we go i will lose weight get new lenses already got new haircut good makeup new clothes and accessories is the modern young woman freer now than 100 years ago both were bound up one was by good works one now is by by good looks let me ask you what's your culture's definition hmm? of barrenness is it success is it having a big name having to be somebody if that's the case you'll do anything to get it and you'll ruin yourself in the process like sarah did What's your business's, business people? Your business's definition of success. You know, making the numbers by the quarter. If that's the case, you'll fudge the numbers. The company will lie. Maybe you'll lie about where you are, why, because that's the definition. And now you're barren. You'll do anything to get. What will keep you from being on the outside? How about you students? What's your school? What's your classes? Your team's definition of barrenness. What's the thing you have to have? Or you're nobody. Is it popularity? I don't know. Sarah's life shows you What happens when you build your identity around a lie and in a way this is saying to us, don't let that be you. Don't let it be you. That's number one. That's Sarah and Hagar. But let's look at number two and flip it over to Hagar and Abraham. And now ask, bringing up Abraham, what does does Abraham, the great hero of the faith, right? The great patriarch do when his wife begs him to get rid of their slave and His child. She called the boy your child, by the way. You'll notice that. Verse 14 says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, gave her the boy, and sent her away. Abraham sends their slave, his child, into the desert. And this wasn't the first time he tried to get rid of them, by the way. About 20 years earlier, Abraham and Sarah had tried to get rid of Hagar once before. Sarah beat her, physically beat her so bad. Hagar left, but then she came back. It was all held together with this uneasy peace because Ishmael is Abraham's son. But now Isaac was on the scene. Now the script. Had flipped. Abraham and Sarah had their own son. Now now they're trying for the second time to bury the bodies in the desert. By the way, some of you, when you read the passage, you thought, well, well, why did God permit and tell Abraham to send them away? Was God just being cruel? No, no, no. God wasn't being cruel at all. Actually, God does this so that Hagar and Ishmael will survive because they're not going to make it in the home of Abraham and Sarah. God incredibly, deeply cares for them, preserves them. And we'll look at that a bit later, but here in Abraham's home and family, his former sex slave and their child were on the brink of ruin. How did all this happen? I mean, how could Abraham, God's great hero, preside over a scandal of his own making? He said, well, if he had just come to some men's conferences, you know, at the church, uh, you know, he would have done better. No, no, no. This was far more than that. This was a complete internal collapse on the part of Abraham revealed in a singular choice he made with Hagar at getting the blessing of God what was his choice it was this to trust in God's sovereignty God's divine hand to save him by sheer grace to supernaturally raise Sarah's womb from the grave in a way right or he could take matters into his own hands sleep with Hagar produce a child on his own right and so now He can trust God. He can trust himself. And that's the choice. Hear me. All human beings have in the same way. The same choice we have, we can trust God to save us, or we can all, you know, choose to make our lives mean something to our our, our work ultimately, or our family ultimately, or our gifts, or our talents, or our beauty, or our relationship, or physical pleasure. Being a good person, coming to church, and all those things. Hear me, in the end, if they're pursued to the extent uh, of being the ultimate thing in your life, they will just become an idol. They'll enslave you. Your life will go crazy and explode just like Abraham's. And Sarah's life went crazy and exploded. You see, the greatest irony in the story is that there's not just one slave here. There are actually three. There's three. Because Abraham and Sarah, they're as much slave to their own culture, they're as much a slave to their own fears as Hagar was to them, and both of them took it out on the easiest one to exploit, a female African, Egyptian, poor female immigrant. <laughs> Some of you are asking. What is this all about? How does this teach me anything good, right? Anything helpful? Most of you probably, likely, you know, maybe even hopefully, are offended and disgusted at the whole sordid episode. And you're probably thinking now one of two things. I would imagine either you're you're a non-Christian and you've come here today, and your friend talked you into coming, and you're like, oh my goodness, or you're a brand new Christian, and you're thinking, this is why. I've got a hard time with church or Bible or faith. This is why I believe maybe even faith systems rooted in the Bible oppress people, especially women. How can Christians claim possibly to want to be like these people? Others of you, other end of the spectrum, you're probably saying, I can't believe you just talked about the patriarchs like that, right? Sunday school told me they were always good. I can't believe they were really that bad. I mean, we're supposed to be like these people. Let's just kind of overlook chapter 16, chapter 20. Just skip ahead the next week, chapter 22, with Abraham and Isaac on the mountain. We like that one. But both groups miss the point because both groups are letting their slip show in a way. Because both groups are coming to the text, coming to the Bible, through the same door. The grid of moralism. They just end up in different rooms in the same house. Because both camps either rejecting parts of the Bible or overlooking parts of the Bible are really the same, and here's why. Both assume that the Bible is foundationally a book of virtues and rules that exists primarily to tell you how to live. And if you'll emulate that, obey that, and you live a good life, then God will love you and bless you and take you to heaven one day. See, either you're offended by this because you think the Bible is supposed to be about good people, or you want to skip over it because you think the Bible is supposed to be about the good people. Listen, there are virtues. Yes, there are rules. Uh, After all, they're not called the Ten Suggestions, right? They're the Ten (laughs) Commandments. And the Bible does tell you how to live at points. But that's not him. I mean, what it's about first, that's not what it's about most. That's making the Bible about you, which just shows us how selfish the human heart can really be. And put it like this. The Bible is about you, and sorry for this, the, the same way, Star Wars is about Chewbacca, all right? If you haven't seen Star Wars, you can watch it this afternoon. I suppose both of you haven't seen it. Chewbacca's in there, right? I mean, he's flying stuff around, running around without pants on. He's all hairy, right? He's growling. He's shooting stuff, blowing stuff up. But the movies aren't primarily about him, right? He goes away, you still got a a movie. And the Bible isn't really about you and your goodness. It's about God and his goodness. That's what Genesis is all about. I mean, look at this text. Do you think the point of the story, the moral of the Bible is that God loves the good people? Because that's not what happens here. Look at this full in the face. And maybe check your Sunday school upbringing at the door. Did God choose Abraham because he was good or better, or more noble, or heroic than anyone else. No, Abraham was preloaded with all kinds of wickedness in his heart, and he acted on it when he got the chance, over and over. God didn't choose Abraham, love Abraham because he's a better person, because he voted the right way. Hashtag the right way. Posted the right stuff on social media. Right now. Listen, conservatives, we, uh, some of us we look at the Bible and we say, well, the Bible's primarily about family values. Really? Because, you know, polygamy and a leaderless home aren't exactly the promises from a promise keeper, right? (laughs) Liberal, some of us, we look at Abraham and we say, how could God use him? He had all this hypocrisy, right? I mean, come on. I mean, I knew he was a hypocrite right behind closed doors. He's a different guy. I knew they were all phonies. We should throw this out, the God I believe in isn't about this, but I mean, this is a God of love who loves both the sinner and the religious hypocrite because the Bible isn't about Abraham and Sarah or Hagar or you or me first. It's about the one who comes with the very ones who can't rise above their culture, who can't overcome the wickedness of our heart, who are so bound in the depths of the depravity of their own cultural bondage, and God comes to the ones who receive his grace one moment, then turn around and reject it the next. That is what this is about. That's Hagar's gospel, the one who loves the ones who can't do for themselves. Let me ask you, what gospel do you have today? Is your gospel that God loves you? Because you're a good person? Come on. Do you really want to go there? That God should save you? And he hates those people? Because they've hurt you in the past? I mean, come on. Listen. The gospel of grace, which is what this is about, is scandalous. Scandalous. It's offensive. And perhaps the reason it is offensive is because the gospel is about someone else first, most, and last. Who is it? You say, well, is there anybody in this story worthwhile? Is there a hero here? Yes, actually. There's a mysterious one. Now, number three, the stranger who meets Hagar in her pain. Let's see who that is. Hagar here has someone speak to her called, this text says, the angel of God. But he's alternately known throughout the Old Testament as the angel of Yahweh, angel of the Lord. Who is this? Well, throughout the Bible, yeah, you you see angels appear uh, and they give messages. But this angel who appears throughout the entire Old Testament, place after place, is different in three fundamental ways from any other angel. First, the angel of the Lord, you'll notice, always speaks not on behalf of God, But the angel of the Lord always speaks as God. And you can see it right here. The angel of the Lord says in this passage about Ishmael, I will make a great nation of him. Well, How can one angel do that on his own? The second thing uh, the angel of the Lord does is receive worship. At other points in the Bible, when someone falls down in front of an angel to worship the angel, the angel always says, get up. Uh, I'm not God. Don't worship me. Right? I'm a created being like you, but in no place someone worships this angel the angel of the lord does he ever refuse someone's worship and third every time god especially in the old testament comes in a in a direct form he comes down on sinai or his people there's always like you know smoke or, or fire or an earthquake some token of his holiness and when god appears yahweh appears he's utterly inaccessible but when the angel of the lord comes he's absolutely normal touchable accessible Nothing is about his, about his appearance that frightens ever anyone. Why is this? I mean, who speaks as God, heals as God, receives worship as God? Well, many commentators, I believe it's most likely Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, a pre-incarnate form of what theologians call a theophany and Old Testament appearance of Christ. See, Jesus, the angel of the Lord, comes to this cast off, Rejected slave woman, and what does the angel of the Lord do? Three things for her. I want to look at each in turn, what it is, and why he gives it. First, the angel of the Lord gives Hagar provision. Look at this. It says, Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. You say, Well, this is so nice of God. You know, he he gives her a water fountain in the desert. No, it's more. God isn't just rescuing her. Here, hear me. He is redeeming her, redeeming Hagar. You say, why is that? Well, because Hagar wasn't just a slave on the outside. She was a slave on the inside, too, back when she got pregnant. It says that then Hagar began to despise Sarah in her own eyes. That word despise means literally to, for someone to look small in your own eyes. And someone only becomes small in your eyes when you have become large in your own See, Hagar had become large in her eyes. Now she was on the top. Sarah was on the bottom. In a moment, her place in the culture had switched. She was at the top. Now she's getting a bit of revenge. Now she lets Ishmael mock. Uh, Hagar does mock his younger brother. See, Hagar wasn't any more free than Sarah. For none of them was just having a son. Having a son was all a means of getting power, status, meaning. But what does God give her? It's something beautiful. It's a well, but that word in the Hebrew means I. It's in something you see with it. It says God showed her an eye, a way of seeing. It's an intentional play on words. See, because Hagar wants to be seen. She wants to be loved. Hagar wants to be free, but she doesn't know how to get it. And now in her moment of isolation and pain and loneliness, God comes to her. The angel of the Lord comes to her and says, I see you. I see you where you are. I love you where you are, even When the very people who should have seen you haven't and won't. Let me ask you, friends, do you know this today? Is this the God that you know, the God who sees you even in your pain and desert? It's the God we have. But secondly, the angel of the Lord gives her a promise. He gives her a promise. Look at this verse 18. The angel of the Lord says, arise, lift up the lad and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Now, of course, we know as the reader God's going to do this. Things are going to work out for them. God is not only going to give them freedom, He's about to give Hagar everything she's ever wanted. She herself, like Sarah, is going to become the mother of a multitude at the pinnacle on top of her culture. God's going to give her everything she's ever wanted, and yet God also says to her, the way forward following me now is through the desert. Into a place of loneliness and isolation and thirst and uncertainty let me ask you can you live with a God like that can you live with a God who says I am absolutely going to take care of you I'm going to provide for you now follow me into the desert follow me into loneliness follow me into pain trusting me even when you don't know how it's going to work out you say well how could how could Hagar know how could she know that God's plan for her would work out in the end how could she know That God would keep his promise to her. It's because of this third final thing that God had already given her. Look at this. Number three was a picture of his heart. Do you know what Ishmael means? Ishmael, the very name of her son, Ishmael, means God hears And God himself, by the way, had told Hagar to name her son this. It was like it was supposed to be like a living prophecy for her, a a light for her when all other lights went out. Remember, he was saying, Hagar, when you look at your son, you can remember that no matter what I hear you, I'm going to hear your cry. And he does. God hears them right here in the desert you say, well, why would God do this? I mean, why would God hear Ishmael's cry, Hagar's cry? They're not particularly noble people. I mean, Ishmael grows up, and says, to be a, a wild donkey of, his, of a man. His younger brothers can't stand him. Why would God hear them in a forsaken place? Oh, because again, this is a picture of who God is, a picture of his heart for us. And not only that, it points us not only to what God does here, but what he would do once more, one day. Because many years later, in another forsaken place called Golgotha, God himself had a son cry out in misery. God himself had a, had a son. His son was abandoned to his name was Jesus. and But unlike Ishmael, when Jesus cried out, God did not hear him. Unlike Ishmael. Hagar, when Jesus cried out, God did not see. He turned his back, shut his ears so that the pain, the price for all of our slavery, all the evil and sin we do for all of our cultural idolatry could fall on his son. That son, the greater son, Jesus Christ, did nothing to deserve the treatment he got and was treated as the ultimate outcast slave for us so that we could now be brought back in as sons and daughters He wasn't heard so that we can know we're always heard by him. Jesus wasn't seen so that we can know we are always seen by God. He's the ultimate Ishmael, the ultimate Hagar. He knows what it's like to be outcast and abandoned even by his father. And by the way, when you see this, Jesus The angel of the Lord who enters into and turns this hopeless situation around. You can know he will do the same for you. Hagar got, oh, just a small piece of God's heart. Oh, and it was enough for her. Enough for her. It can be enough for us today. Let me just apply this. What can you do with all this? Let me just apply this briefly in two ways here as we close. First of all, I want to encourage us. This text is also showing us we should hear the cry of the oppressed think about it. Out of all the ones God comes to here, it's a poor pagan woman. She is Egyptian. She's not of the messianic line in that culture. She's on the bottom, not at the top. God shows here his heart isn't about just certain races or classes of people. Do you think, by the way, God loves the rich? Oh, here it's the rich who have the power and who are exploiting the poor. God identifies with the powerless and the poor here. And if God has blessed you, brought you into his family, now how much more should we emulate him? By caring for those for have no one else to stand up for them, right? Maybe, maybe in our culture, like in this one, it's the immigrant who's being exploited. Maybe it's the unborn, unwanted child like Ishmael who's got no one to speak for him here. But God here speaks up for both. Abraham wouldn't speak up for his immigrant wife, for his unborn child, unwanted child. But he said, no, I've got a plan for Ishmael even before Ishmael was born. See, in our culture, conservatives say God cares for the unborn. Liberals say God cares for the plight of the immigrant. God here says, I care for both because all are made in my image. Yeah. And second, please, hear God's heart for you. This text tells us all of us are fallen, all of us are broken, all of us are enslaved some way to our culture, and until we can it all, I in the same way, we're a Hagar, her name means flight, her name means running, she was always running from her pain inside, running from God, until you can say, oh God, I'm like a Hagar, I've been running from you, but now you've tracked me down, you found me, you say, God, I want to come home to your heart, oh, if you can do that today, now, you can, like Hagar, be set free. And great space for God, maybe, maybe, to give you what's been in his heart for you all along. If you can say, God, you tracked me down. I surrender. This can be your day as well. If you can say amen to that church. Let's go to him now. Go to the Father here in prayer as we ask him for all these things.